Hello and welcome to the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Cummings, founder of the jewellery brand Cleopatra's Bling. In season three of the podcast, we are continuing to bring you interviews with creatives and craftspeople that we love. In between episodes, we're also telling short stories for you to cook or commute to. Join us as we delve into topics from history and design that inspire our artisanal collections. This week, we're talking about one of the most notorious goldsmiths of all time. Olivia, do you think you would have been a jeweller if you'd been born sometime in the past, like the Middle Ages, or what would you be doing? Um, I really do love medieval jewellery, so I like to think that I, I would have been a jeweller, or at least some kind of craftsperson of, you know, one of their incredible crafts mm. like maybe the what are they called the book of hours you know those medieval music manuscripts too that like came ah, in like the yes. shape of hearts yeah super incredible yeah yeah they're very beautiful by the way just for anyone listening who's who hasn't been introduced to James Gilligan in the last podcast we're back here with James greetings in all Brunswick today on a very humid autumn day yeah a lot of roadworks a lot of robot talk. It was a difficult parking. Um, well, yeah, so I used to live in Italy and I did really love visiting, particularly the Archaeological Museum in Naples. That was my favourite one. It was incredible. So, yeah, I think all of that stuff's really influenced me. I loved the idea of living in Naples and making jewellery in the Middle Ages. It's awesome. Yeah, I mean, except for dying at 30 but, or something. Yeah. What would I have <laughs> I died what was, of? What, what, the, would, what did I die? I don't know. Typhus, I don't know. Yeah, gout. No, probably, you know. probably scurvy or something That's like that. That's how I'm going to go. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I have been thinking a lot about the past and how it influences our culture, society and design in the present. And obviously so many of our collections are built around ancient coins, which I source in Italy and Turkey, predominantly Turkey. So what if I were to tell you that long before the concept of borderless Europe, united by the currency of the euro, there was another coin whose indisputable worth made it coveted by pirates and kings alike. It created a city filled with lust for wealth and fame, the birthplace of a rogue goldsmith as notorious for his theft of jewels and his vengeful murderous spirit as for his work itself. It's also the city where we handcraft all of our solid gold pieces today because it has such a long and storied tradition of goldsmithing. And we're talking about Florence, right? Corretto. <laughs> allora. Si, allora, mangiamo. Um, no, not today. James and I always <laughs> eat together, so we have to have times where we work too. Yes, come on. Yeah, so some of the things remain the same. Gold is still a coveted material and the goldsmiths who work in Florence are impeccably trained. But at the advent of the goldsmith period, life in Florence was much more colourful than it is today. So we're talking poisoning, necromancy, theft and secret escape plots. In the year 1200, trade in Florence was flourishing. Towers dotted the skyline of the city, and as the century dawned, new walls sprang up all around the edges of the town. 30,000 people lived there, and still more immigrants arrived, seeking to become merchants of the city's many valuable items, or perhaps artisans with one of their guilds. Although noble families struggled for power, their attempts to rule over the populace were thwarted by the strength of the merchants and artisans, the people as they were known. The people cut down the towers in which the nobles resided, with none being allowed to be higher than 29 metres to hinder the arrogance of the aristocracy. 
With the merchant groups back in power, their activities expanded. Trade routes spiralled out from Florence, covering the entire Mediterranean region. Salt, wine, dried fruit, meat, spices, leather, fur, wax, tin and coral. These poured into the city from northern Africa and the rest of Europe. And alongside them came gold. This really reminds me of the cameos that they carve out out of coral. I don't know if you've seen them in Italian oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. jewellery. Yeah. Um, it's sort of the only place that you sort of see modern day coral jewellery. Yeah, right. It's kind of a looked, you know, it's sort of a taboo now. Right. Okay. Um, well, you know, you hope it's not from the Great Barrier Reef. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <You know. laughs> exactly. So that's, yeah, you see it around. There's like old men who've, had that in their family tradition for generations. They carve into coral. Wow, okay. With these like relief sort of, you know, pops out. It's like 3D. Mm -hmm. It's really incredible. So with this surplus of gold that could be put to practical use, a solution was required. It was this period known as the Primo Popolo. I hope you enjoyed that. (laughs) That peace reigned and with the people power, a new coin was minted. The gold florin. The gold florin. Fantastic. So I've actually seen one of them in real life, which is really cool. Yeah. So as the florin began to be used in international trade, it is no wonder that other countries began to cotton on, modelling currencies of their own after the coin. First, in the Middle East and North Africa, the florin itself became a widely used local currency. Later, other prosperous Italian city-states copied the idea, generating well-known coins such as the Venetian Ducat. Uh, We actually have two coins of this sort of um, era in our collection, all the Byzantine medallions Mm. and Mandoli medallions. Wow. Yeah. So it's really interesting to work with coins because our understanding of coins today is so different than what it was back then. So, it was essentially a novel concept um, to have this territorial coin. It wasn't a totally new concept, but the florin was the first time a city-state had minted its own coins since the fall of the Roman Empire. And it showed the power and success of Florence on a world stage. It was over the next several centuries that the goldwork began to truly emerge as a product of Florence and a byproduct of the success of the city and its associations and familiarity with the medal. Yeah, all the wealth and power must have attracted some ambitious people to the stage at that point. Definitely. And the buzz in the city was pretty powerful and lasted quite a long time. It was into this environment 300 years after the first gleam of the florin on the world stage that, in 1500, Benvenuto Cellini was born. Cellini was a troublemaker from an early age. Born to a musician father. Explain. Stay it. away. I was about to say, stay away from musicians, people. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> run a mile. Run. Run. His family wished to push him towards music, but he was certain of his desire to be a goldsmith. James, it's never too late. Yeah, you that's could right. Become the, yeah, the yeah. modern day Cellini. I wish I had parents that pushed me to be a goldsmith. <laughs> Would have been much better for me. Never mind. No, no, no. Don't. On we go. So over the following years, he spent time in both Rome and France, where he produced some of his most famed works, including a bronze statue of Persis holding the head of Medusa and a golden salt cellar for Francis I. The latter is considered the finest example of his work. Constructed of gold and enamel, 
Upon a base of ebony, it features two beautifully carved figures, Ceres, the goddess of agriculture, and Neptune, the god of the sea. With their legs intertwined, they represent the balance of earth and water and the coupling of salt of the sea and pepper of the land on a noble dinner plate. How beautiful, imagining. So beautiful. More than his impressive artistry, however, Cellini is often remembered for his life story. Unlike painters of the period, many of his greatest works don't survive, having been melted down for gold bullion. That's really annoying. It's sad. However, he recorded his memories in his autobiography with perhaps more than a pinch or two of dramatic details less than faithful to the truth. <laughs> okay, basically writing himself as the star of his own memories. And- I mean, if I wrote my own autobiography, it'd be probably pretty good. But if someone else wrote it, it'd be different. It would read well. Yeah, yeah. You know? Zero regrets. That's How many autobiographies are called that? <laughs> How many? A lot. Absolutely. So we don't really know for sure exactly what's true and what's not. But he had a sense for PR because he understood that sometimes to be remembered, it's better to be notorious than simply famous. The stories about him make him sound more like a 90s hip hop mogul than an Italian goldsmith. Yes, very, uh, very gangster. Yeah. Yes. God, death, sex and success. Yeah, exactly. Actually, like a rapper, he has also been described in the following terms. Poet, soldier, musician, priest. Pretty apt, no? Mm. It's difficult to know how much of the tales are true and how much are attempts of his larger-than-life personality to force history to remember him. Nonetheless, his affairs with women and men alike have caused him to be called a gay icon and for Oscar Wilde to name him a supreme scoundrel of the Renaissance. (laughs) You know, it's quite something, isn't it? That's awesome. What a compliment. As a young man, he ended up being banished from Florence. In his autobiography, he writes that this was due to his having attacked a local family like a raging bull, in inverted commas, and killed a man due to his very hot temper. The two parties became engaged in a blood feud, ending with Cellini being stabbed by them and sentenced to death by the state. He escaped his sentence by fleeing the city. All of this only took place after he'd already been accused of outlawed sexual practices and violence by his goldsmithing guild. All right. So yes, well, he sounds like an absolute legend. I, w- I would like to have met him. I'm just getting started of his, you know... Incredible. ...range of Can't wait talents. To more. Go on. So he ended up fighting in a war in which mutinous troops tried to invade Rome and claimed to be the soldier who, out of a huge crowd, managed to shoot and kill the leader of the invading army. Sounds super likely. Likely. Awesome. Odds are in his favour. Although the army still managed to overrun Rome, by this point Cellini had already set up a pretty roaring trade as a Roman goldsmith. He had received the patronage of the Medicis and therefore came to the attention of the Pope. For this reason, when the invading army began to ransack Rome, it was Cellini that the Pope asked to take and hide his jewels by extracting them from all the gold in which they were set. Wow. That's one way to keep you, you know... Keep your bank safe. It's amazing. Exactly. Um, and you were about to tell me that this is a service that Cleopatra's Bling is about to start offering? Yeah, I, th- I decided <laughs> we good. needed some more edge to the business. Yeah, well, you know, so Russia's on the move, so... if Exactly. Might so I was well. thinking, Shit. you know, the, the day that Rome or Melbourne gets ransacked by mutinous troops, we can Great. look Bring into this in. new business model. I love it. Extracting gems from gold. From banks to bangles. Exactly. Awesome. The new CB offering... <laughs> 
So the Pope asked Cellini to take all the gold from the jewels and melt it down in as much secrecy as he could before the two of them fled from Rome together. Awesome. That sounds like some sort of debaucherous little road trip with the Pope. Imagine being on a road trip with the Pope. What sort of vehicle would you be in? Well, they didn't take the Pope mobile where it has like the glass, you know, when he goes through. Yeah, but they're trying to (laughs) do this on the down low. (laughs) It's amazing. Unbelievable. It doesn't need to be bulletproof perspex at that point, just arrow proof. Exactly. Right? Easy, easy. Fun trip. (laughs) Perfect. So that's when he went back to Florence finally. But in the meantime, something pretty relatable had happened. Florence was overcome by plague. So writers from the time record the city being completely transformed from bustling, clean thoroughfares to closed businesses and quote, unquote, stinking streets. Mm, That sounds very familiar, yes. So I'm wondering with the plague, what... I mean, sorry to get a bit off topic and grim here, but was the did the mortality rate a lot higher than coronavirus? Are you kidding? Of course, the okay. plague is the plague. Yeah, yeah, big time. I mean, yeah, this is, I thought I th- I think I remember reading it was like fifty percent. Yeah, it puts things in perspective it, with um, yeah. you know, sometimes, sometimes these things. <laughs> so, um, over the next years, Cellini moved around as the plague raged. I wonder how they moved around. Like, you can't really move fast before aeroplanes, so probably just horse. horse and or cart. That's yeah. <laughs> Over the next years, Cellini moved around as the plague raged, but when it had been, when it was finally over, the Pope reinstated and he returned to Rome. You might think he would have been ready for the quiet life, and perhaps he would have been, but as fate would have it, Cellini's brother was suddenly murdered. And, of course, the goldsmith had to take revenge. The details are pretty brutal, but suffice to say that apparently Cellini was successful in avenging his brother's death and even managed to escape prosecution. The Pope pardoned him by saying, Men like Benvenuto, unique in their profession, need not to be subject to the law. Wowee, double standards. What a legend. I told you that Pope-mobile trip was... Mm. Formative. It was. Very nice. They've got a strong foundation to their relationship. So basically he was such a good goldsmith that he didn't have to follow the rules anymore. I mean, imagine having that sort of nepotism. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I mean, it's probably the same now. Lots lots of people get away with things. A couple of oligarchs. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. Do what you will. Exactly. (laughs) So one of the most florid ways that he bent the rules and mores of the day was when he fell in love with one of his servants after his return to Rome. She rejected him. She probably read his resume. And so he decided to hire a necromancer to go with him to the Colosseum at night. Amazing. Get the witch in. Get the witch in to to solve the the problem. I would say yes to anything if I knew that someone had hired a necromancer to perform spells on me. That would freak me out. Yeah, you'd probably... Yeah, that's coercion of the highest order. (laughs) Yeah. He brought along a virgin 12-year-old girl, as one does, to strengthen the magic, and she recounts witnessing the necromancer conjuring hordes of demons that filled the empty arena in service of Cellini's love wish. It's very different from a little text these days, isn't it? Yeah, people breaking up over text message is a little different. Yeah. Honestly, there are too many Cellini stories to recount all in one go. After the necromancy, he went on to survive being poisoned while wrongfully imprisoned, 
underwent a jailhouse conversion with hallucinogenic visions of Christ and to kill his biggest goldsmithing rival. But you may have to read the full autobiography for those. Yes, well, I feel our, uh, you know, the Cleopatra's Bling team is uh, quite wholesome after hearing all those little escapades of him. Yeah, we're very pure. Oh, very, very well-behaved. Well-behaved team. I'll get his bit of absinthe for Christmas. See how we go. Hello. Hello, darkness, my old friend. (laughs) Okay. Hello, you. Everything about Cleopatra's Bling as a label is built around connection, whether this be between the past and the present, different cultures and practices, or between our team and you. At the end of each mini-sode, I'll be answering a question submitted by you as a way of staying connected. I want to share what I've learned through years of making jewellery, growing a brand, immersing myself in history, and being taught by the artisans that train me in the art of working with gold, silver, and gems. Ear even asks, what is the inspiration behind the different types of gems you use? Where and how are they sourced? So initially when I started the brand, I worked with a lot more sort of like unfaceted raw stones. That was probably because I didn't have a lot of knowledge at the time about, you know, more precious faceted sourced stones. And I was living in Istanbul and I had access to a lot of different kinds of stones through the bazaar there. I would say that today my appreciation for stones has really changed because I do understand more about clarity and the way they're faceted and cut. So the more I get into it, the more I'm interested in their origin and the way that they're cut, you know, the steps from mining to end user. So I'm very, very, very interested in working with local, specifically here in Australia, we have so many incredible sapphires. So I work with a man up in Sydney who has, works with small mines and he cuts the stones himself. So it's very, very small production. There's no weird stuff going on in between the mine and our end user. It's really important to us. We also work with a woman who's based in the US and it's all traceable back to the mine and it's predominantly women who work uh, with her. So that's also really empowering. And then in Istanbul, we work with a family from Afghanistan who I've worked with essentially from the beginning of Cleopatra's Bling, so nine years ago. And they source the most wonderful lapis lazuli from Afghanistan. And a lot of those really interesting relic stones that you may have seen in my work that are engraved with animals we get all of them engraved in our Istanbul studio. And then really, really high quality Iranian turquoise, which is one of my favorite stones as well. Essentially what we do is we work with different regions. So in Australia, sapphires are one of our biggest assets along with opals. We just find somebody who's really reliable, who respects the stones and isn't only in it to you know, make a lot of money. I've noticed the difference between sort of the big gem dealers and the small people that we go through that are super passionate about the stones. And then we just work case by case. So we don't bulk buy a lot of things. We really hand select the stones. 
and we really stick to what people know. So in Turkey, the regional stones are tourmaline. When I say the region, I mean also Afghanistan and those surrounding countries. Tourmaline, lapis lazuli and turquoise from Iran. So that's what we stick to. And then in Asia, there are other stones. Like you can get incredible Ceylon sapphires. You can get really wonderful emeralds. And then in Bali, we get a few seashells as well that we work with. And they're all ethically sourced and they come with a certificate. So, yeah, I just think it's about sourcing small quantities but well. And then obviously sometimes we just can't find those specific styles again and then that's the end. In Vedic astrology, which is Indian astrology, they talk about your birthstone, which is based on your leading planet. Don't quote me, but it's like a whole thing. I got my chart done and the Jyotish astrologer told me I needed to wear a yellow sapphire that touched my skin. So we made a specific band and setting for the ring so that the sapphire touches my skin as I'm wearing it, which is meant to be what they do in India. In India, they wear them and they do a whole ceremony to Shiva with ghee and honey and all these things, and they never take the ring off. I think an interesting way to look at it is that in a lot of different cultures around the world, stones have very, you know, important significance. I think in the West, people are into like crystals and things like that. But if you go to Turkey or India or a lot of other older countries in terms of their folklore around stones, you're going to find that there's a very deep belief system, which is what makes working with stones so interesting. If you have any questions about jewellery making, creative practices, or whatever you are curious about when it comes to Cleopatra's Bling, drop us a line at hello at cleopatrasbling.com with the subject line podcast question. You can also send us your question in the form of a voice memo that we will edit into the podcast. Next time on the podcast. They didn't live in the world that I did. They didn't have, hadn't done the things that I had. I had more of a deep dive into that alternative culture, which I think was an important thing to take to vote. Until next time, stay curious. Bye. Thanks, James. (laughs) 